Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You can call me J-Bay. Thanks for tuning into the Blissful Prospecting Podcast. This show is for reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate when a prospect asks them, so hey, what do you guys do in a cold call? And you're not quite sure how to answer it. And today's episode is going to be geared towards helping you answer that question. I'm talking to my man, David Premer, who's been on the show a couple times on how we're messing up the easiest part of our cold calls. So this is part of a webinar that we did a few weeks ago, and we've been getting such a great response to it that I wanted to put an audio version in here for the podcast for you to listen to. But there's that moment inevitably that comes up, especially if you do a good cold call, even during a sales call, where people ask you, so what is it that you do? What is this again? Any variation of a question like that, and where do we typically go? We usually go into what it is that we do. I know the person's asking, so what do you do? But really what they're asking is, how can this help me? Why should I care about it? So we need to answer the question through the lens of the other person, not about categorically what we do. So if people ask me what we do, I can't say sales trainer and sales coach and leave it at that. I have to add more context into things that this person will resonate with. And there's a very simple love-hate kind of formula that David's gonna share with you today in this webinar when you listen to it. And it's something that has really dramatically changed the way that I talk about what I do. Because if someone asked me, I'd say, hey, I'm a sales outbound sales trainer and coach. I help people get better results from their cold outreach. And that's not bad, it's pretty straightforward, but it doesn't really elicit an emotional reaction that gets the prospect to lean in and ask me more. So now what I say is exactly what you heard at the beginning of the podcast. And I learned this from David. So hey, I help sales teams and sales reps that love landing big meetings with their prospects but hate sending hundreds of cold emails that go unopened and unresponded to. That's something that most salespeople doing outbound can relate with. So we're gonna learn that formula for David. Before we get to it, two things. One, you already know about the free stuff if you're listening to the podcast. Please like, subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. It helps get this podcast in front of more people exactly like you. So keep tuning in for the free stuff. Happy to keep that coming. And if you're looking to invest in yourself and put some extra time into really becoming a world-class outbound prospector, we have a program called our Outbound Prospecting Boot Camps. And in the boot camp, what we do is we work directly with individuals like you. And you can get feedback from me on your emails. We'll build talk tracks together, all kinds of fun stuff. But people are adding on average one to three extra meetings per week to their calendar. So if you're serious about stepping it up, putting some work in, there's no secrets, no magic tricks here. If you're willing to invest in yourself and put some work in, I'd love to talk to you. You can check out the program at blissfulprospecting.com. Go to the programs tab in the boot camps, or you can send me an email directly, jason at blissfulprospecting.com. Put boot camp into the subject line and I'll hook you up. Same thing if you're a sales leader and you're looking for more help with your team, send me an email. Would love to hear from you. Jason at blissfulprospecting.com. I'm very confident you're not going to find anything better out there in terms of practical prospecting advice, actually how to make a good cold call, how to send a good cold email, how to personalize it, all that good stuff. Make sure to reach out. Let's get to the episode today. Let me introduce our guest today. It's not Paul Rudd, unfortunately, (laughs) but fortunately for you, he's going to talk about stuff. I don't think Paul Rudd could help you with the stuff David's going to help you with today. So we're going to talk about cold calling, you know, how you're messing up the easiest part of the cold calls. And David, 
what I really enjoy about David Premer, he's got a book uh, he just came out with called Sell the Way You Buy. I recommend it a ton to people to check out. And there's a really good mix of psychology in there and then also practical application. I usually feel like the practical application part is missing from the psychology piece in sales. And David does a really good job of talking about that. But he's the founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling. And what we're going to get into today is how to talk about what you do in a way that actually engages the prospect versus makes them tune out. So David, it's super exciting to jam with you again. We've done, a, I think, a webinar and uh, we've done a podcast or two so far, too. So it's, uh, it's always fun to jam with you, man. Yeah, we had your virtual event last year, which is kind of how we kick things off. But no, it's great. And, you know, I have to say for everyone who's listening, you know, you know, Jason is awesome. I really enjoy connecting with Jason, too. He's super down to earth, very authentic. And uh, I love what he's doing uh, with his business. So thank you for having me be a part of uh, your community here. No, absolutely. I appreciate this. Uh, so let's dig in. There is some stuff, I think, to kind of set the stage here that we were talking about that was really interesting around how they were kind of I don't know if marketing is the right word. I think of it as marketing, but how the COVID vaccine has been rolled out and like the messaging around it and all this other stuff. You want to kind of go ahead and start with that? Yeah. Like, you know, so it's funny. You, people always ask, you know, what, what are some sales lessons that you've learned since writing the book? And I said, my gosh, the book came out in like a year ago, like last April. And the concepts are still the same, but the application, there's so much we've learned over the last year living through the pandemic that is so relatable to some of the concepts that we see in everyday life and selling. Anyway, so the concept I was referring to is something I call, well, it's not something I call, it's something that is called denominator neglect. And we talked about it a little bit in our uh, promo video, which is this idea that when we present what we do to our customer, here's the, like the high level pitch. When we present what we do to our customers and we use numbers and we use data, it's really important to make sure that those numbers and data are relatable. So for example, if you have a product or service that saves your company's or your customer's time, right? Like, oh, like we automate this, we automate that. It's going to give you time back in your day. Well, then the question is, well, great. Like how much time are we talking here? Are we talking 20% of my time? Are we talking 40 hours a month? Like those two numbers could be mathematically equivalent, but they're not processed in the same way in the mind. So the lesson as it kind of relates to the pandemic specifically we're talking last week was this Johnson and Johnson vaccine pause that they had in the U S and of course, you know, there are these incidents and you see this with the AstraZeneca vaccine as well, these incidents of rare blood clots. And when people hear, Oh my gosh, like there were six people in the U S that got blood clots as a result of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, people freak out because you can now, you know, it's partially due to the media who reports these things. And of course they have to, but you can picture six people right? Like you can picture, oh, there was a woman who was 52 years old. Like, oh my gosh, that could be my sister, my mother, my aunt, or someone. It's very vivid in your mind. But if I told you that the probability of getting a complication from that vaccine was 0.00009%, which is actually what it, what it was, it was six out of seven, almost 7 million, doesn't seem quite so bad. So the first lesson from the pandemic was this idea of denominator neglect. The idea is when we have a fraction, meaning like we have six people out of 7 million, we tend to focus on the six because it's more emotionally charged, it's more relatable. So I would say for all of you, as you're describing what it is that you do to your customers and you're using data and we all use data, right? 20% of organizations are gonna have a data breach. This company spent $8 million to remedy the, uh, you know, the impact of, of this incident. All of these times we use numbers, we have to keep in mind that all numbers are not created equal and some will have a greater emotional impact than others. 
Oh, I love this. I'm so excited to dig in because uh, this is a really good kind of segue because we're talking about, you know, the easiest part of the cold call, which is when the prospect asks you, so what do you do? That means they're hyper engaged. They're going to give you like the stage for 10 seconds or 15 <laughs> seconds or whatever. Right. And that's, that's this really tough question to answer. And what I'm hearing from you is it sounds like context. Is that a word you would use to describe like providing context is really important because a percentage number means nothing to me. But a number of hours, I can visualize what it's like to, you know, not waste an hour every day doing a particular activity or to get an hour back out of my day to do something else. I can really visualize that. So is it the context that's missing in how most people talk about what they do? Yeah. So partially it's the context. The term that I often go back to is one that I read in, in Dan Pink's book, To Sell as Human, which I love of mm-hmm. that book is it's a, a term known as processing fluency. I'm Canadian, so I say processing. So shout out to all the people in the UK. Yay, queen, right? We say process. So we say processing fluency. So it's this idea that when I describe what it is I do, how quickly is that message received by your brain and felt? Like It doesn't matter if you know exactly like the nuts and bolts of what I do tactically, but how well you understand how this relates to you. So, you know, for example, if you were to ask me, so David, like, well, what do I do? Now, of course, I always say, it also depends on which product I'm talking about, if I sell multiple products, and then the role of the person I'm speaking to. So, you know, my wife, who's a teacher, teaches, teaches grade six. So when her teacher friends ask me, they're like, oh, David, what do you do? And I know they kind of don't care. They want to put me in a bucket. I'm like, oh, I train salespeople. They're like, oh, that's nice. Right. But if I'm speaking to like a, a sales leader or a salesperson and they ask me what I do, I might respond with something like, let me ask you this. Do you ever wonder why you don't like talking to salespeople? And then all of a sudden they have this little mini epiphany. Right. And I say, look, I work with companies all the time who realize that people love to buy things, but they hate talking to salespeople. And now they have this little mini epiphany. And now they're leaning in and now they're saying, tell me more about, like, about this sounds interesting. What is this? I don't get into the fact that, oh, it's slides and it's courses and I have a book, like that comes later. The first thing is that processing fluency. How quickly do you feel what I'm putting out there and lean in and say, tell me more. And you were actually, I feel like generous at the beginning when you said, oh yeah, they're going to give you 10, 15 seconds, all that kind of stuff. I actually think it's way less than that. And in fact, like, think about this, when you go to a website, like go to look at like the Deloitte Fast 500, all these fast growing tech companies. I want you to go to the website. I want you to see in the first 30 seconds, if you can figure out what it is they do, right? I'm willing to bet that for a lot of them, you can't. And in fact, the web research shows that if you visit a website and you can't figure out what that company does in a short period of time, you're going to bounce. So I, I do believe that people are paying attention for those very short moments after they ask you what it is that you do. And you have a very short amount of time to capture that attention until they kind of beg you to, okay, lead on and tell me more, right? Very short. It's one of those things where it's just because they're giving you the mic for 30 seconds, let's say, doesn't mean that they're listening the entire time. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you been on the end of a call where you're like, you listen for a couple seconds and you're like, okay, this is not relevant. And you start doing something else in your computer. It's like, like oh yeah, yeah. You catch a, every other word, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you're not fully engaged. It's like when you yeah. read a newspaper headline, like the headline, the purpose of the headline and don't, you know, it's funny having written the book. People judge books by covers. I don't care what they told you in elementary school. People will do, will yeah. judge the book by the cover. By the same token, you know, people will judge the article by the headline. And the headline 
has to draw them in. And the purpose of the headline is to get them to, you know, just read the next sentence. And then the next sentence is to read the sentence after that. So it needs to be super simple. It needs to be engaging. It needs to be also differentiated because there's so many people, you know, what you do, like if you were to describe, or I was to ask you like, well, okay, well, give me the nuts and bolts. What do you do at your company? Like, oh, we're a platform for this. And we're a automation for that. And like, there's a million people that do what you do. There's a million people that do what I do, right? So that window is very short, especially when you're prospecting and the person doesn't is trying to decide, should I hang up on this, this individual? Should I respond to this yeah. email? Right. Very important to do it quickly. So before we get into kind of the, the how part of this, I'm really curious. This might be kind of fun, David in the chat. Let us know. Can you guys, what do you do in the chat? Let us know a sentence, two sentences, three sentences, <laughs> however you describe what you do to your prospect. And if you want to add the context, you can say for CFOs, I do this. So if you want to add some context here in the chat, this will give David a really good idea of what you're doing and it will make this much more practical to you. So let's take a couple seconds, you guys, in the chat. What do you do? How do you answer that? So Samara said SDR for a cybersecurity company. So think about if you were reaching out and prospecting, Samara, what would you tell the prospect that you do? Mm-hmm. So we're getting, okay, we're getting some good ones here. So how would you answer the question if a prospect asked you, so what do you guys do? Yeah, I like this. Jennifer saying, remove blind spots for how brands are performing on Amazon. Okay, drive employee engagement, how to prospect and sell, buy now, pay later platform. Yeah, we get rid of finance's biggest headaches. I like this. Yeah, driving revenue for mobile app. Like the thing is, it doesn't really matter what I think or it doesn't matter what Jason thinks. The whole thing is it just matters what your customer thinks. Are they leaning in and saying, tell me more. One of the things that, you know, is kind of like a nuanced thing that I I talk about in my training, I don't talk as much about in the book and my content is the the idea that this has to be somewhat differentiated, right? Because there's lots of people who get rid of finance executives' biggest headaches. And, you know, we we help with malpractice insurance or, you know, life-changing profits for business owners. Like, these are okay things, but some of these these things are high level. Like, for example, if I was starting a, a financial services firm, and I said, well, at Premier Financial, we believe in providing world-class service for very low fees, right? Like in a way you understand that and it, it's like you get it, but everyone says that, like it's kind of an intuitive thing. So part of the trick is to be a little bit unique, right? Actually, Peter Thiel talks about this in his book, Zero to One. He talks about this idea that all great businesses are kind of built on this secret. Like it's a thing, like it's, a, well, you know, I'll, I'll refer to it as an enemy, an enemy that people understand that they have, but don't often talk about. So I'll tell you, my third startup. So my third startup was actually acquired by Salesforce. That's how I ended up working there. But what did we do? If you said, well, you know, what did we do? We were a feedback coaching and recognition platform. Like that's what we were. We help people at work, employees get more feedback coaching and recognition. But that's kind of easy for someone to, okay, like I understand what you do, but I don't really understand why I need that or really like the problem that you're solving. And so what we did was we led with an enemy. And I talk about this a lot in my content in my book. I refer to these as polarizing statements. This idea that when we pick an enemy of our product and service, meaning we fall in love with the problem and we lead with the problem, not the product, it makes it so much easier for the customer to understand what we do. So what did we do? And this is the very simple technique that I teach and you can absolutely you know, feel free to use as well, is describe what you do using the words love and hate in a sentence. So you already heard me use it earlier. People love to buy things, but they hate talking to salespeople. 
right? You might say like men love to dress well, but they hate to shop. This is a quote from Trunk Club. Or you might say um, what we did at our feedback company, we said, look, people love feedback, but they hate performance reviews, right? And then people would hear that and they would say, yes, yes, what you said, we hate performance reviews too. And now you're leaning in and you're more interested to hear what I have to say next. So the key is not just picking an enemy, but making it a little bit more unique and differentiated so you don't sound the same as everyone else. So if we were to, and I know it's not necessarily fair, we won't do this in a way that's super judgmental of the what people have put in the chat. And I thank you everyone for the participation, but it might be kind of interesting, uh, David, I don't know what you think, maybe to look at a couple of these and give some examples if you want. I love this, the love-hate thing, by the way, because you really challenged me. I don't know if you meant to do this, but in the webinar that we did first, you, I think you asked me, so Jason, what do you do? I was like, at the time, what I said, and this is maybe six months ago or whenever it was, I help sales teams uh, land meetings through their cold outreach, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's really easy to understand, right? Cold outreach, land meetings. Yeah, everyone wants to do that. But when I really started thinking about it, you're like, well, what, what do people that prospect, what do they love? Well, they love landing that big meeting, right? But what they hate is spending hours writing hundreds of cold emails that never get responses. And that's how I talk about what I do now. I help reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate spending hours writing hundreds of cold emails that never get responded to. And that seems to like really click, you know, with people from an emotional standpoint. And I wrote some of the ones that you mentioned in the chat here, but uh, do you want to maybe use some examples just from what you're seeing in the chat and provide some context to people? Cause I, I love this piece of it. Yeah. Look, I mean, and you guys are doing amazing. First of all, there's way yep. more content in the chat that we could possibly go through, but I think I saw someone earlier that talked about, you know, for example, we help people, you know, uh, close more business through social, you know, social media, like we do social media management or promotion, that kind of thing. And I'll tell you, like, you could say, oh yes, we work with business owners to help them grow their social presence and revenue or revenue from social by 20%. I'm like, okay. That's nice. I guess, look, I want to grow my revenue from social, but I'll tell you something. Recently, I started looking into how to do LinkedIn ads. And as I, and I'm a total, like I've been, I've used LinkedIn for many years. I've never done any kind of, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn ads. And I'm looking at the process. I started to watch these YouTube videos online of like people explaining how to do LinkedIn ads. And I was like, man, this is really complicated. This is much harder than I thought. And I almost have to work up the emotional energy and dedicate like two hours. I'm just going to block it out and go all in on these LinkedIn ads. So if you wanted to sell me on your product or service that makes this easy, you might say, hey, look, people love the idea of using social to grow their business, but they hate the fact that it's so complicated to figure out. That would make me lean in a lot more because it's a more specific enemy than if you were just talking about, oh, we help people grow your, you know, your business on social. I'm just looking here at the list here. Here we go. Now, now look, And I say this as well to my clients when we start our training program, it is okay to suck, right? I don't, you know, it's okay to struggle, to really craft a message that's really hard hitting, that's emotionally charged because a lot of people were just conditioned, right? To have messages. And, and, you know, so again, these messages aren't bad. You know, we help build retention and engagement with your families. I'm like, okay. I'm trying to figure out, so what's the problem there? Am I not building that retention now? We help customer service organizations improve their customer experience. Okay, so that's okay. Like, But now I'm thinking to myself, like, what's the enemy? You know, what's the enemy yeah. here? Like, for example, I'm working with a, a learning management, an LMS provider who, you know, talks about, you know, hey, look, people love, you know, LMS, but they hate the complexity that comes with it. And I was like, okay, 
what's the complexity? Like I'm complexity is a generic term that could mean all sorts of things. You know, is it the fact that like people love learning management systems, but employees hate using them, right? Like that's something that's more focused, more targeted. I feel it more emotionally. I'm seeing here, uh, we help teams function better for amazing project results. Okay, it's okay, Winnie, but like everyone can say that. So the question is like, what is the specific problem that you're helping me solve? Like you're actually selling me on a gain. Like if, hey, look, if you use my platform or we help our teams do, you will achieve something better. You almost have to show me that, and this goes back to this concept, which I'm a huge, huge fan of, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, loss aversion. People do things, they will take greater risks to reduce losses than to achieve gains. So this question of like, are you helping me go from where I am today to some point in the future where things are better? Or are you showing me that what I'm doing today is actually not in a neutral position? What I'm doing today is bad. And I'm actually losing if I continue to do what I'm doing today. So what is the enemy? What is the thing that I hate today? Right, here we go. So Nicole, make sure your business is not fined 4% of its revenue for being non-compliant with GDPR. So this is a good example of denominator neglect. 4% of my revenue, can I do that off the top of my head? Versus you might say, look, for small businesses like you, on average, you know, they get they get dinged with uh, GDPR compliance. 20% of companies are gonna get hit with this. And the average cost to a small business is $2 million. Like those numbers would be more tangible for me. But again, you might say, look, we work with organizations who love this idea of compliance, but hate the fact that it's so complicated to figure out what they need to do to be in compliance, right? So like using the love, there's lots of different tactics, but those love hates, tangible, specific, little bit unique and differentiated. That's what you want to do. So this is where you would throw the persona who love gain, but hate common enemy. Let's like think about by the way, I'm loving what people are putting in the chat with this. It's amazing. It's like really cool. One that really I like is um, Paul Mingus, doctor's offices hates uh, the sea of clipboards and paper. That's such an emotional like thing that they're going to respond to. So it's like we help doctors yeah, who love it when data flows directly into their health records. And I think we can work on that piece a little bit, but absolutely hate the sea of clipboards and paper. That's something if you said that in a cold call, even at the top, and said, hey, can I ask you a couple questions? I'm curious if you're dealing with that. Like that would like immediately grab their attention. But what we could do here is, what are some other ways like this part here for people that are kind of struggling with this piece, what are some ways they can think of this love part? Like what to fill in um, here? What are some things they could think about, things they could find, like that sort of stuff? Yeah, like, you know, I was, the word blissful ironically is the thing that came to mind. This idea of Mm -hmm. like, what is the blissful future that you can imagine, like what is the objective that you're trying to achieve? So people, you know, we work with people who love growth. They love simplicity, but they hate the fact, right? They live in a sea of clipboards and paper. I love that, right? Like, so the the love is the desired future state. Like it's funny, the one I think about, so as as a small business entrepreneur, one of the things that I realize is that I spend all sorts of time doing things in my business that I secretly know and believe a complete waste of my time, right? I should be giving these, you know, like, uh, you, now hold on a second. So much on this. Yeah. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I want to slow down here. This laugh, I haven't heard a laugh that deep before, but this laugh is actually super important. I want to double click into this. 
Super important because I'll tell you, like we would go at my third startup, right? We would go to these HR conferences and we would get up on stage and we would say, you know, in a room full of HR people who was what we were primarily selling to, we would say, you know what we learned? People love feedback and they hate performance reviews. And you know what they would do? They would laugh. And why would they laugh? Well, there's actually, there's two kinds of laugh. There's a laugh that you did, Jason, which is like the, I completely a thousand percent agree with what you just said. And I can't believe that no one has said this before in, in exactly that way. Like you, you hit me so hard that that laugh actually shows me that you know what I'm talking about, right? And this is the, the magic of polarizing statements or picking an enemy, that processing fluency super fast. Now, you don't even know, let's say I had a solution to this problem. You don't even know what my solution is. But now as a small business entrepreneur, you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, whatever David's selling, I want to listen to him now, right? So that laugh is really important. The second kind of laugh, by the way, that we would see back in the Ripple days were people who would laugh because they would say, hey, you know what? I don't like the way you're talking here because performance reviews are good and they work. And the reason you don't like them is because you're doing them wrong. If you did them right, you would like them. And by the way, this is my job to do performance reviews. So I don't like the way you're talking, like you're almost trying to put me out of a job. And what we would say to those people is that, it's okay. This is not for you because the beauty of picking an enemy and polarizing, that's the idea is that you're going to very quickly decide whether you're on my side of this argument or you're on the other person's side. And whatever side you're on, I say, that's good. Like, cause I don't want to waste my time. Let's say for example, if you need to be on a scale of one to 10, eight before you buy something from me and you come into my sales funnel, if I polarize you, I'm going to quickly figure out if you're like a six or you're a two. If you're a six, I can sell you up to an eight. I'm willing to put in that time. If you're a two, that's a lot of work to move you to, I don't wanna have to do that. Like from two to an eight, I'll move you to two to five and you won't buy anything at the end of the day anyway. So I don't wanna discount that laugh is actually quite important. Oh, I mean, there's so much in what you said just now. So one big thing for me that I'm hearing from that is that it's okay to be polarizing and for people to not relate with what you said. That's actually way better. I think there's this fear, especially when we're prospecting, that, well, if we choose sides, that's going to irritate some people. They may not be interested. I might turn away some people and I need meetings, David. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it's that fear that actually keeps you from really relating with that 10 or 20% of people that are like, oh yeah, like we're your people. So am I getting that right? And, And like that fear is that common? How do we kind of deal with that? mentally if we're a little gun shy around saying the wrong thing to someone. For sure. Well, it's fine. I'm going to use my own objection handling tactics. So my book, chapter seven, tactic number five, I refer to this as consider the alternative. So I would say, okay, so let's say you go to market with your middle of the road, you know, pitch, because you don't want to offend anyone. You don't want to get anyone super jacked up and you go with this pitch. What's going to happen, right? You're going to end up bringing back a whole bunch of leads of various levels of intent, right? And you don't know if they're they're with you, if they're against you, if they really love what they do, love what you do. You're going to end up spending time with them and having these discussions. And ultimately, they may not buy anything anyways. So what's going to happen? You're just going to end up wasting time. So my advice, especially nowadays, where there's so many people that do what we do, is it's okay. It's good to polarize people, right? Like people respond to companies, to brands, to products that they have this emotional connection with. And the data, the science bears this out as well. So it's really important to lead with that emotion. Like at the end of the day, especially for prospecting, I'm not saying 
we're three quarters of the way through the sales cycle and we're talking to executives and we're having business case discussions and signing all that's different. We're talking about prospecting here. And the goal of prospecting is to get the other person to lean in and say, tell me more. So I would say to you, okay, great. Like if you start going out with these generic messages that people don't understand, you're going to pull back all sorts of prospects. And you know what? We did, we had that at Ripple before we started leading with very polarizing messages while we were figuring it out. We led with like, oh yeah, it's, you know, feedback for people at work. And then people, we would get all sorts of people saying, is this like a survey tool? Cause we need a survey tool. And then we end up spending time with those customers and prospects, right? So you want people who want specifically what you can provide. I'll tell you, like, I'll give you an example. So my sister is a small business owner. She's a personal trainer. And so what does she do? She goes out to the market and she says, I work with women. She says, she says I work with middle-aged women, which is great because that's what she is. And that like, it's, you know, she's very specific who want to get in shape and have tried everything and nothing has worked for them. That's when you come to me. And she had someone, actually a, a client of her say, you know what? I'm thinking of just, you know, I, I love what you're doing. I want to sign up. I'm thinking though, I, I work really well when someone tells me like what to eat. So I also, in addition to working with you, I want to sign up for this meal plan where they deliver the food to me and they tell me it's all portion control. They tell me what to eat. And she starts working with this person and this person isn't ultimately happy because the things that she's talking to her about kind of go against this whole meal plan methodology. And so she ends up spending so much time with this customer before realizing she's like, you know what? I need to dial up my level of polarization a little bit more because I'm wasting my time with clients like these. And if you're interested in this meal plan thing, you have not tried everything. You only come to me once you've tried everything, right? <laughs> so I say it's good to polarize people. So there's a couple other things that you mentioned just in there. And we have some questions too. This is so fun, by the way, because like it's cool when we can talk about something and then people try it and we can give them feedback. It's just, I, I love that. So I think with this hate part here, especially, I think what you have to really do is pay close attention to what your prospects tell you. So when you get a chance and you actually do get someone on the phone and they share a problem or a pain with you or something they hate, you better transcribe that thing word for word because that's the thing that you can start using. Um, the uh, I've tried everything, that would be a money headline for a website for a personal trainer or any kind of health coach. But that's exact. those are the exact words that people say. So um, I, I wanted to ask you a couple questions. And these are questions that I kind of deal with too. For the who part, because Justin was asking, we have a product that's designed for the end customer. However, that isn't who we're selling to when considering the love-hate relationship. Do we address the buyer? Do we address the end customer? Like, how do you figure out like who this piece is, which is going to drive the love and hate piece, of course? It's such a good question. And uh, I'll tell you, Justin, so most of my clients are B2B technology companies. That's I've done four startups. I worked at Salesforce for five years. That's my background. But I also have a number of clients who are outside of that realm. And one of my clients is a, a client I really love. They are a high-end dog food company. So they're, what do they do? They produce this you know, organic, ethically sourced, great for the animals, like dog food. But their goal is to sell that, not just to like end customers through their website, you know, who want the best thing for their dog, but primarily they sell it to like pet stores, right? Who want to, you know, they try to convince these, you know, store owners and merchandisers to stock their pet food on the shelf. So the idea is what that person to that point, the persona, who is the persona? Are we selling to the end customer? In which case we're going to say something. If we are selling to that store manager or merchandiser, we're going to say something else. 
So back to that persona, I love like the non-tech examples, but so if you're a store manager, what do you care about? Well, now we're living in the pandemic and people don't want to come into the pet food store as much. And so they're looking for products, higher end products. They're going to bring customers back into the store. A lot of store managers actually get compensated based on profit margin. And that's the thing that they're focused on. So they like the idea of being able to stock a premium product on the shelf that nets them a higher profit margin because then they make more money and their store does, does better. All of those things are completely separate than why the end customer is buying healthy organic dog food for their pet, right? So it's really important when you're thinking about that, this love-hate, it really needs to be focused on that specific person. Now, in that consumer example, the store manager versus the end customer with a dog, those are two very different things. But even think in an organization, you're selling IT security software. So think about, you know, if you're selling to the CFO, you might be selling like the cost of the data breach. If you're selling to, for example, like a, a director of IT who's had a data breach, maybe what they really care about, like their enemy is like not getting fired and keeping their job. And so you really have to understand like who you're selling it to. And, and part of the challenge is when you go out with a generic sounding message, it's not really targeted to anyone. It's not gonna, you know, it's like it's targeted to everyone and no one. It's not gonna land the way you want it to. So the key is really thinking about who is that specific person and what does that person, by the way, this is another cornerstone piece of content I talk about a ton in my book and on my channels, is this idea of like, what does that person value? And people, they mess up value and ROI all the time. Like oftentimes we sell like the business case, like, oh, sell the business case, sell the return on investment. But I would ask you, like, think about something, all of you on the webinar, think about something that you spend your hard-earned money on that another person would look at and say, that's ridiculous, right? Well, <laughs> sometimes with my clients, I ask them to put that in the Zoom chat. We learn a lot about people like, what is something you spend money on that another human being would look at and say, well, that's ridiculous, right? And Nickelback uh, concert too. <laughs> <for me. laughs> there you go. go Canada. Yeah, there you go. Well, so, you know, so someone might look at this like, what the heck is that? And I might say, so Jason, like, what's the ROI of going to that Nickelback concert? I don't know. I mean, I, I love going. It feels great to go and like to participate in it. But I'm, yeah, I'm not thinking about, it's such an emotional decision whether or not to spend a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or, you know, whether to throw down and get one of the seats in the front versus, you know, viewing 20, 40 rows back. It's not a calculation that I am even thinking about. It's just pure gut. How does it feel? Exactly. And, and I could say, well, you know what? It's like going on vacation. Like, where did you go on your, I mean, not, we're all in this, I would love to go on vacation, you know, sometime soon again, mm -hmm. but we all think, so where did you go on your last vacation? What was the ROI of that? Like, wh why did you do that? Why didn't you go to this other place instead? Why'd you go to this resort or that resort? I suspect you believe deep down inside that there is a specific reason why you chose one versus the other. But oftentimes we can't articulate that. We can't, we're not that in touch with our emotional state that we can say, oh yes, it was because of this or it was because of that. And in fact, the science bears that out. There was a study six years ago, it was called the New Science of Customer Emotions. And, uh, and I talk about this in the book, like the emotional motivators why people buy things. Like if you buy a, a Tesla for, I am not hating on Tesla owners, you know, but if you're buying a Tesla, I'm gonna ask you like, well, why'd you buy it? You're more likely to say, well, you know, it's good for the environment and it's got a lot of cool technology, but you're less likely to tell me it's because you're like an Elon Musk you know, fanboy or girl, and you believe in the future of the planet the way, you know, Elon does and so on. 
But that might be very well why you bought it, right? It gives you that vision of the future, that confidence in yourself. Why did you upgrade you know, your airline ticket to fly first class? What's the ROI of that? You're going to Paris for two weeks and you're, you're paying you know, five grand for a first class upgrade. Like, What's the ROI there? No, you did it because you want to have that experience. And so it's the same thing when we're selling to our persona. What is the feeling that they are buying when they buy us and the best way. And so that's what we want to focus on. But the best way to do that, one of the best ways is to like, and I would say the simplest way is to focus on that enemy because that enemy will bring out those emotions. And and especially when we bring it back to the context of prospecting in a cold call, (laughs) I mean, you have, you know, cold calls vary in length, but it's, if you set a meeting from that cold call, it's probably a minute and a half to five to seven minutes typically is what I see the range being the prospect is probably not making a logical decision during that time, whether to say yes, to take another meeting with you or not. Like you're purely like, did something fire emotionally for them or not? And one of the things that, I don't know if we talked about this, but my wife uh, is <laughs> had me read a book, You're Not Listening. So it was on listening, <laughs> which is funny. I haven't finished the book yet, but one of the things they talk about on there was the kind of brain science. And I don't know a lot of the technical stuff, but just behind two people that are connecting and really feeling understood and listening to each other. And their brain waves apparently are a little more in sync, like when they look at them compared to two people that are not connecting with each other and they're not listening. And the way that I kind of think about this is the emotional part when you can engage them there, like your goal in a cold call is to figure out how quickly you can get in sync with the person. And if you can do that in the first 30 to 60 seconds using a statement like this, that's, I mean, right there, the person's going to give you the time of day, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that, that light switch goes on, you know, for them. There's another question, Miriam and Lydia are both asking the same question. Do you have to lead with the love part and then end with the hate part? Or can you do it reverse order? Does it matter what order you lead with? It's a good question. There are times where a question order matters and I wish I could get into this. It's a very big topic that I talk about in the book and and I talk about on my YouTube channel as well. When you're asking questions, the order matters. When it comes to like the love-hate, does the same science apply? I don't know. It probably is okay to lead with the hate, but I love this idea of starting with the love first because it creates this aspirational vision of the future. Yeah. And then I drag the person down in, and in the best possible way, I say this, right? right? Metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> Metaphorically, <laughs> by talking about the thing that they like, you know, people want to get to this you know, end goal, but they hate the fact that it's dr- drawing them back. Like even yeah. to the, so I would say, stick with the love first, then the hate, you know, even to the example that I gave earlier that you laughed at, I said, you know, like as a busy entrepreneur, I'm sure Jason, I work, or I, let's say I was pitching you, Jason, I work with, with busy entrepreneurs who love their business but they hate the fact that they spend so much time on tasks they know are adding no value. I can help, right? Now you're leaning in and you're saying, tell me, so yeah, you love to run your business, but you hate the fact that you're spending time on things you don't need to. And by the way, you know, I say love, hate, this is kind of, you know, as we learn things, there's a lot of tactics that I teach where I teach like a specific term or a specific word or specific way to do it. But then once you become proficient at it, you can start using, you know, the same tactics without using those words, Right. Yeah. So, for example, if I said, hey, Jason, I work with, you know, entrepreneurs who who have the, who are super passionate and mission driven about what they're doing, but they are absolutely crushed by the fact that yada, yada, yada. So I can use different words 
It's the emotion. And in fact, you know, the, the words that we choose are very important. You know, when we hear words like, you know, litigation, data breach, infestation, pandemic, you know, these things are emotionally charged words, right? So to the extent that you can use these emotionally charged words in an emotionally charged way, because hopefully, you know, one of the things I, I ask people, and I don't fish for compliments when I ask this, is I say, can you tell that I love this, Jason? Like, can you tell that I love having these discussions with people like you? And people would say, oh yeah, like we can tell. I'm saying, I say, great, I'm, I love having these discussions. I'm glad you can tell. And then I ask them like, well, how can you tell? Like, what are you, what are you picking up, right? And they'll say, oh, you know, you're very passionate and you're, you seem to know a lot about this and you, you know, you, your body language. And these are like very nondescript things, right? But the problem is, is that you can have the best love-hate statement and I could be reading it off a script in a monotone fashion. One of the things that it, when, when people hear people speak, this is actually a, a TED talk by Frances Fry, who's a business school professor at Harvard. She gave a talk called How to Build and Rebuild Trust. This is a TED talk. And she says, you know, one of the things people are always looking at when we're communicating with them is how authentic they're being. Like, are you, are you acting like yourself or are you just reading from a script? So even with the right words, they need to be delivered with the right tone. So you believe that this is coming from me. This is not coming from a script. Yeah, it's almost like when you say it, you need to kind of almost sit in with the prospect, like how they might feel with the hate part. Like for me that, you know, hate spending hours writing cold emails that never get responded. Like I know what that feels like, you know, and like you, you kind of lean into it a little bit and let that come out emotionally. And the, um, I think a big part that's missing, I'm curious what you think, especially in cold calls is that conviction where, you know, I'm sure you've talked to the sales, it's unfortunately been very few and far between for me. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to that sales rep, that's like, they just believe in what they do so much and that they can help you and they can get away with saying things like this. So you could be like, you know, I'm not really sure. They'd be like, David, I understand there's a little hesitancy, but I did some research, man. And I really think that we can help you here. And if we spend five or 10 minutes together, I promise you're gonna take away, let's meet anyways. Like, what's your calendar look like? When they can say it, and have conviction, you can get away with being a little bit more, I don't even want to say pushy, because it doesn't feel pushy. I can prompt you and just kind of like lean in and be like, dude, I, I get it. I really believe in what we're doing. And more importantly, I talk to a lot of people like you, and I, I know this is something, and you mentioned that you're going uh, through it right now, and you don't have a lot of time, but I promise this will be worth your time. Can we meet? You know, it's like that, like when that comes out, you can get away with a little bit more. And, and I almost even hate saying getting away because it sounds like you're being manipulative, but you can push just past an extra no or two if you're really, really believe in what you're saying and you're hitting all of the right emotional triggers. For sure. Well, look, you know, if you look at the spectrum of clients that you know you service in your business, there are some clients like that are right in the strike zone of people you can help. They're like B2B, high growth, you know, they're right in the strikes. And then there's people who are kind of, let's say, a little bit outside the strike zone. For me, I always liked, you know, when I encounter a customer that's like right in the strike zone, it's hard for me to give up on them because I know deep down inside that I can help them. Now, of course, that takes time to manifest. You know, one of the, the biggest challenges I talk about, it's all very well and good for me to be saying these things. And of course, like I sell to, you know, sales and marketing teams and I've been a VP of sales four times. I worked at Salesforce for five years so I, I have that experience, but one of the biggest challenges we have is that we leave the prospecting to young, 
new, less experienced sellers, right? SDRs, BDRs, God bless them. And we tell them, we say, go out and call high, call onto people whose job you've never done and try to manifest this conviction that's really needed to convert them. And this is a problem I actually referred to in my book. And I wrote a Harvard Business Post on this a couple of years ago. I refer to this as experience asymmetry. So this imbalance that gets created when a younger or lesser experienced or newer person is calling on a more senior level decision maker, like you're prospecting in, whose job you've never done. And so what happens is actually very similar as the way I describe it, like the way my kids, I have three daughters, when they come to me, and for those of you out there who have kids, when your kids come to you and they're about to hit you up for something, right? They wanna lift to the mall, they wanna download an app, they wanna sugar it. Now here's the thing, Jason, you're smiling. So you know, you know where I'm going with it. I don't, I don't, I don't want to discount this for everyone who's watching. Like the smiling, it signifies that processing fluency. The fact that Jason knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I don't even need, I could stop, right? I don't even need to keep going. But when my kids come to me and they're about to hit me up for something, I can tell immediately just by the way they approach me. And it's the same thing with experience asymmetry. I used to run small business sales for Salesforce for the Eastern US. So I had reps in a bunch of different cities. And my New York City reps always hustled the most. But sometimes I would find these reps with like lots of calls, lots of activity and no pipeline. And when I would listen to the calls, because that was the only recourse. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. You're saying, you seem to, you're telling me you're saying the right things. You're calling at the right time. You're calling the right people. What's going on? And I would listen to these calls and I would almost like just close my eyes. And let's say, I don't even care what the words are. I'm just listening for whatever. And I would say, it sounds to me like you're bothering this customer. Like that's what it's, that's the tone that you're conveying is like, you're not really sure you're tentative if you're going to be able to add value. And so I can hear it in your voice the same way my kids, when they're about to hit me up for something that they know I'm going to say no to. And so it's not just the words, the love, hate, and getting the messaging down. It's the tone. And there's lots of hacks, if I can call them that, because look, we're not going to get out of the fact that if you're younger, newer, less experienced, like we're still going to be asking to make calls. We just need to arm you with the tactics to help manifest that conviction that we're talking about. This is really good. And uh, Samara, it says, how do you create that conviction without the shared experience? Which I think is a really good question. And I have some different ideas too, but I'm curious, David, how do you create that conviction? Because it's really hard to fake. And I think that, I think that people in general are pretty bad actors, including myself. It's kind of hard to pretend to have the conviction if you don't have it. But what advice do you have for Samara? Yeah. Well, so here, one of the pieces of advice, actually, I shared this week on social, is that oftentimes we get our sales reps, we arm them with scripts and like, oh, here's the win slide. Here's a list of representative customers. And to them, it's like an academic exercise. It's like, this is just numbers on a, on a paper. Oh, did you know we work with Google and Facebook and they do all this kind of like, there's no context. They, they lack the conviction emotion because they didn't see it firsthand. One of the easiest things you can do and this is actually, uh, I referenced a study that Adam Grant, so people know Adam Grant from the Wharton School of Business, you know, super amazing, you know, author and, and thought leader in the world, in the world of organizational psychology. He said, you know, I want to help the BDRs in the Wharton alumni department, because these alumni, you know, BDRs are calling, you know, alumni graduates and saying, oh, hey, can you donate money to the university? And then they, what did they say? They said, oh, well, we we're going to use this uh, scholarship money, or we're going to use the money you donate to us for scholarships, and it's going to go to serve underprivileged people and all these great things. And for them, it was like an academic exercise. So what does Adam Grant do? He gets a bunch of students who received grants that came in as a result of alumni donations to tell the BDRs, here, I'm a real person. 
I got this grant, this donation. Here's what I did with it. And here's what I did with my life. And all of a sudden the BDRs were like, this is like real for us now. And what happened? Yeah. The revenue from that team increased 400%. So one of the simplest things you can do is get out of this, like the wind slide, you know, wind story, testimonial mentality, get a real customer who experienced the value of your solution, put them in front of your sales team and have the sales team in, and have them explain the value they got, right? The sales team will then be able to deliver that message with much more conviction because they heard it firsthand. And as a salesperson, you don't need like a million stories. I'll tell you, here's a great story. One of my clients uh, who's in shout out to Vancouver, they're a accounting company, cloud bookkeeping company in Vancouver. They said that they implemented one of my discovery tactics and they were able to take, the, just focusing on that one thing, they were able to take the ramp time for their sales reps down from four months to three weeks. They said, all we did was we focused on teaching them this one tactic and we were seeing conversion numbers that typically take four months, three weeks into the job. Wow. I tell that story all the time. Yeah. That's one customer. It's one data point, but you know, I have other customers that experience other benefits, but, but because it was told to me with so much passion and conviction, I'm able to relay it with that same passion and conviction. So that's a super simple thing that you can do. Just get your customers in front of these people. I love that tactic. It's you almost kind of like, and as a sales leader, kind of almost engineer like a fireside chat and you can record it and just let this, your sales team and you ask smart questions to people and record it. You have this like piece of gold for onboarding and training and messaging and all kinds of stuff. The other thing that you sort of alluded to there that's interesting is that a lot of the people I work with, I'm less experienced than, you know, I've been in sales. It's the only adult job I've had, but I've only been an adult for 14 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, I talk to people that have been a VP of sales for 14 years and then were in other sales positions, another 14 years on top of that. You know, so I deal with something fairly similar where there's an imposter syndrome that comes in. I'm like, oh, can I help that? Like, why would they want to talk to me kind of thing? And if you make it less about how you're so awesome and your company's products and services are so awesome and more about how can I just be an advocate for our clients? How can I talk about what our clients are doing that's really good and problems they're solving and how we're helping them and make it more about them than about how awesome I am? Because of course, you're not going to feel great as a 24-year-old calling on someone in their 40s that's a VP and talking about how awesome you are. They're going to be like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> well, you know? You know, no, like there's so much genius in what you just said, because there are so many opportunities to like abdicate to our customers, right? Like the way I kind of describe it, especially if you're young or new, I say like, no one cares what you think, right? And, and what happens is people, especially young, new people, they fall into this, what I refer to as the eye phrasing trap. So they say, well, what I found, what I've seen, what I feel, what I like, what I like, they just, it's I. And it's like, who the hell are you? You're no one. Okay. Yep. But who has the, so you have no credibility. I mean, like you might have some credibility, but I'm gonna, let's just assume you have no credibility. What I might say is I say, well, who has credibility? Your customers have credibility. The longevity of your company has credibility. Third party reputable sources like Harvard Business or these you know, research studies and so on have credibility. So instead of saying a well, lot, what I think, what I feel, what I found, get into the we phrasing mindset. So what, what our customers have found is this, or you know, there was an article in Harvard Business and what they found was that right? Or this leading industry analyst had this report and what they found. Now it's not your words because you have no credibility. You're manifesting the words of your customers. Even you can do this for um, talking about competitors. So actually the most recent video I have on my YouTube channel that I published a couple of weeks ago was about how to talk about competitors. And it's the same thing. So rather than saying, 
oh yeah, we're like, we're, we're less expensive. We're better quality. You could say, well, look, if you ask our customers why they went with us versus, you know, uh, company B, what they'll probably tell you is that they really enjoy ABC about us. Voice of the customer, way more powerful than your voice. It's so much more disarming too, where I'm like, okay, what do your customers have to say? I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that versus here's how we differentiate. And it's hard to not do that common mistake where people talk shit about the competition. It just, it just drives prospects insane. You know, we got about five minutes left here. You guys, I want to make sure just before anyone has to hop, make sure to check out David's book, sell the way you buy. I just dropped it in the chat. A few, a bunch of people were asking about it throughout, but uh, definitely pick it up. It's, it's got everything we talked. I mean, we talked about one framework today um, that's in the book. <laughs> there is, I think, a half a dozen just frameworks on how to talk about what you do in there, among other things. Anything else that, uh, and Robert says this is one of the best books he's ever read. Oh, awesome. thank you, Robert. Um, see what we did there? We, we talked about what Robert said. Yeah, like it's not, what, you know, it's not what we think. Yeah. Um, but David, what else can people expect in the book? Because it, it's more than just about talking about what you do. I mean, there's a ton of great stuff in there. But what, what can people expect to find in the book if they want to check it out? For sure. Well, tactically, there's kind of three main chapters that go into messaging. So kind of describing what you do. Uh, discovery, how the science of self-disclosure and how we get customers to open up about their, you know, their deepest, darkest fears and secrets, and then objection handling. So there's tons of tactics, but those are chapters five, six, and seven. The first, you know, three or four chapters are all about just the science of how people make purchasing decisions. Because it's really important before we talk about tactics, the idea is like if selling the way you buy is important, first we need to figure out like, well, well, how is it that we buy? And what I try to do is I try to, you know, bring stories from everyday life. You know, I talk about kids. I talk about, you know, uh, going to Disney World. You know, I talk about, you know, health scares. I, you know, I, I talk about all sorts of things that are relatable from everyday life. And, you know, it's people they really enjoy the book. They say it's very approachable. It's on um, Audible as well. So if you feel like listening to six and a half hours of me cool. re reading my own book. <laughs> you can oh, and do you, you did the Audible too. That's even better where you, you read the book. Cool. We got some people buying it. And, and for some people are asking about, will this be recorded? We'll definitely send this out to you, but you guys check out the book or the audio book. And then Let's also give David some love on uh, LinkedIn. I just dropped his uh, LinkedIn. Let's blow his LinkedIn profile up with like, oh my gosh. a connection request. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, you know what? One of the best things about this, why do I do this, right? I do this because I got into sales. You'll hear this. If you read the book, you'll get the story. But I got into sales by accident like everyone else does. I was a research scientist you know, 20 years ago, not even in psychology. I was in science and engineering and got into sales by accident. And I absolutely fell in love with sales. I, I hope you can tell, I love sales so much, but when you tell someone you're in sales, you're like the enemy, right? No, no one, people don't like talking to salespeople. It's not just my opinion. There's data that talks about that as well. And so, you know, my mission is to help people. And then look, there's a lot of bad salespeople out there, but I believe they're not bad people, right? They're good people. We're just executing these playbooks that are a little old, they're a little outdated. They're not aligned with how people buy. And we've learned so much in the last five, 10, one year ago, right? We've learned so much about how people buy that it's not so hard to align our sales motion, you know, to that, right? But why do we execute sales the way we do? We do it because that's just kind of how we were taught. So anyways, I, I talk about this in chapter one, I'm 45 years old. So I mentioned the beginning. So 1984, The Karate Kid, one of my favorite movies as a, as a child came out. And uh, I talk about the, what I refer to as the Cobra Kai paradox, which is, you know, we just, we have these kids who like to beat up on, you know, on other kids, because that's what their sensei told them to do. But if we, if they had a different sensei, 
they would be different. And so that's yeah. part of my mission is to, you know, make the world of sales better. No, I love it. David, this has been awesome. You guys make sure to check him out on LinkedIn, go grab his book. If you're into books and listening to audiobooks and that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, I'll send out the replay out to you guys. I appreciate the participation and, uh, David, thank you so much for spending an hour with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Jason. Thank it's, we, you know, people don't know Jason and I have these conversations, just him and I by ourselves all the time. And so it's great to, uh, to have people in and share, but uh, we're two soldiers in the same fight here. We're all trying to, to get better at sales and help people get better yep. at the same time. So, so thank you for having me. This is great. No, absolutely. For the rest of you guys, thank you for participating and joining. We'll uh, have a good rest of your week. We'll talk to you soon. We'll see you later, everyone. Take care, everyone. Yeah, so one of the things I really liked about the webinar with David, again, the very simple formula, the love, hate kind of thing, you really dug into it. And I'd love to hear from you what your value prop is. So let me know on LinkedIn. You can reach out to me, connect with me, send me a DM and say, hey, I listened to your episode with David. Here's my attempt at a value prop statement, a love-hate value prop statement. So let me know. And I appreciate you tuning in. It's been spending about an hour with us today. I know that your time is really valuable. So I really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. We'll see you next episode.